If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Ulysses S. Grant. Prepare to step onto the battlefield and learn how Grant and Lincoln turned the Civil War into a holy war. Well, I think in describing how a battlefield looked or indeed smelled and even sounded, I would begin with paraphrasing what Sherman had said about a battlefield, particularly specifically at Shiloh. He said the dead carpeted the earth and bodies were in grotesque positions in every position imaginable, locked and frozen in death, saying that it was ghastly, that war indeed was hell. Also, the sound of a battlefield, which is crackling, burning of trees or equipment, caissons and and wagons and so forth, the wood burning, and the moans uh, of the wounded, uh, as stretcher bearers go out after the fighting has started, picking up the wounded and trying to get them to medical help. The smell of a battlefield, not many people fortunately know that, that blood has an odor. If there is enough of it, then if one has never smelled it, then, then one is fortunate because obviously one has never been around a great quantity of spilled blood, but blood has an odor all its own. It's unmistakable. And you can smell blood shed on the ground and also so many horses and mules that are killed on the battlefield that it is it's frequently said that that one can smell a battlefield, particularly the day after or two days after. 20 miles away. Really? That's that's significant? We are in a hurry to bury the dead. Horses and mules are dragged together and burned. And you can easily imagine, Mr. Dean, how how much of a stench that would be, the burning horse and mule flesh. But we obviously, we can't bury the animals, but we drag them together and put the torch to them, coal oil and wood, and burn them the bodies of the animals, the men we put in the ground, albeit shallow graves, but we put the men in the ground as fast as we can because the health issues that result from the bodies rotting and decaying are flies by the millions. The air will darken with flies swarming the bodies of the dead and, and the wounded if they're too badly wounded to move. So the horror of a battlefield, particularly immediately after a battle and for days after a battle, cannot be adequately described. That and, is hard to imagine. Yes, it is. And, and one should never have to see it. Leave it alone, if possible, to the imagination. I think about your life and like how you could actually tolerate this. And... I mean, I don't understand how any soldier can, can handle that. But I look back at your life and I think about when you were with your father and you were growing up 
in the tannery and how you were talking about how you got used to that, although you hated blood, how you learned to kind of categorize that into something that you could stand. And then I can see that your life basically led to this point where you were able to deal with a situation like that. How did you, how did you handle the morale of the people? Because right after a battle, all these <clears throat> people are dead and it, now they go and immediately start burying them. How does that not destroy the, the morale of the soldiers? Soldiers have a spirit of soul and mentality that when the, the firing stops and the smoke blows away, first there is the feeling that I'm alive, I survived this. Wow. And the strictly being about business, we have things to do. We've got to, to bury the dead. We've got to secure the area. We've got to be sure that, that uh, a counter charge is not coming. All the while, the survivors, particularly men who have lost good friends, are suffering from guilt of why was my best friend or why was my buddy killed or indeed why was every man in the line advancing killed except me? And those questions are pondered all over the battlefield. The professionalism of soldiers, once they've seen the elephant and pull themselves back together. When the shooting starts, the equanimity of spirit and soul and the calmness of survivors as they pick up the pieces of their lives and go on with what has to be done in the army as we move against the enemy or protect ourselves from the enemy. On the field, would the soldiers, would you, when you say you immediately go to bury the other soldiers, would you bury the enemy as well? Yes, we have to bury everybody. And that's why there are so many unknown graves. There are two reasons when when one goes through the cemeteries today are, that are resultant from battlefields of unknown soldiers. By definition, as I've said before, of the loosely defined rules of war, possession of the field after the battle is the winner. Along with the, the laurels that, that an army may have with having possession of the field and winning the victory, as it were, also comes the responsibility to bury the dead. And because of the rampant, severe health issues, of the epidemics that can break out from decaying bodies that aren't properly buried, the burials must be done quickly. The army that's in possession of the field, the men that are dead are for the most part their friends who have fought with them know this is this individual and, and their grave may be marked with a board and, and some chalk or a, a pencil piece of charcoal uh, and ember from a fire to write the man's name and unit above his grave. The enemy, though, that has retreated, and this would apply north or south, if the enemy has retreated, then we don't know who the man may be who is dead. We don't wear, with rare exception, identification discs. Uh, they're becoming, in the war, popular men, but the, the armies are not issued identification discs. So if you, if you want, if, if you can bear the thought that you may die, if you want to be known, then you go to the blacksmith who will punch it, take an awl and a piece of metal and punch out your name and initials and perhaps your unit, and you wear it on a piece of leather around your neck. 
but that's strictly up to the individual. Not many men do that. Now, if there's not an identification disc on a body, we don't know who it is. Would the enemy have been buried in mass graves? Yes, we buried them in mass graves because it's not a matter of, of disrespect to the enemy. It's a matter of we don't know who these men are. Yeah. We've got to get them in the ground in a hurry. Graves are shallow enough as it is. And we lay them in head to foot. You lay a, a row of head to foot. One man feet is, or, or next to another the man or the two men are each side of them to their head. So we, we lay them at opposite ends. And then we come in and lay the second level of bodies over them and cover them all over with earth. And it's not a matter of disrespect. It's not a matter of we, whether it's north or south. We threw them yanks and them ribs. We just threw them in the ground disrespectfully. That's not the case. It's a case of we need to bury these bodies as quickly as we can. And of the enemy soldiers, we don't know who any of them are unless they've got some identification on them, which they uh, frequently do. But with our own soldiers, all of them, with rare exception, are known. And they somehow are memorialized on some makeshift tomb. If a piece of wood or a couple of pieces of wood can be nailed together over a man's grave and identify his name and unit. Gosh, that is, that, that's really incredible. In our time, all soldiers wear those tags. They call them dog tags, but... Did did they have a name for them back then? Did the people that would do it, they, would they just call it an identification tag? Called them identification discs. That's, I think, the most common term, just, just identification disc. And they'd be a coin-sized disc where a blacksmith or an uh, engraver would work with an awl and punch your name and initials on a disc and your unit. So if your body's found, they would at least know who, what unit you belong to and what your name was. As you're going from battle to battle, I, I can't imagine anything more stressful than, take Shiloh, for example. Okay, Shiloh, you said 23,746 men died in 36 hours. When you get done with that, I have to believe that the last thing anybody wants to do is work more and bury bodies. And yet I can also see how men would since they knew the person they were standing next to, they felt a sense of duty to do that, thinking that the other man would do the same for them. But once that work is all done, how do you keep yourself and how do you keep the men up? Because when that battle's done, you're going to be fighting another one in four days, right? Well, it depends. You might not see action for days or weeks. You might see action the next day. One never knows what the future will bring. We just have to steel ourselves to the reality of warfare. You know, I rarely quote General Nathan Bedford Forrest, but I will quote him in saying, war means fighting and fighting means killing. When the war started, this, this is an overarching statement, but it applies to both sides. We hadn't had a war since 1848 and now we're into 1861, so 13 years since there's been a war. Nobody except for your Mexican war veterans had any concept of what was involved in the horror of war. What the country had on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line was that warfare were thundering drums and soaring horns, playing 
stirring martial music while handsome young men in snappy uniforms were marching with that resounding tread in parades and pretty girls in their frocks were adoring the young men. It was I would guess it didn't look like this on the battlefield. Exactly. No one had any concept of what the battlefield looked like. There had been battles fought before. There had been certainly Bull Run, and there had been uh, Perryville, which was a federal victory not long before, Fort Donaldson in, in February of 62. There had been men to die. There had been bloodshed and agony. And that was beginning. There was some awareness of that across the country to those few who had a loved one killed or wounded at a specific battle. But there had been nothing, nothing to approach the Armageddon that was Shiloh. When that many men were killed and wounded, those that survived their wounds went back home. And towns all over the country began to see men with empty trouser legs and empty sleeves or missing an eye or or some disfiguring wound. Those men began filtering back to their hometowns and people began to see that war was not pretty girls and uh, snappy uniforms and inspiring march of music. It was killing. It was maiming, dismemberment, bloodshed, agony, death. Shiloh was, I think, the true beginning of that. You see, Shiloh was resultant of this. Because the, the war was fought for both sides, causing country, principle, and patriotism. Think about that, Mr. Dean. Uh-huh. Cause and country, patriotism, and principle uh-huh. for the North and for the South. The North refused to let the country be put asunder. The South determined that they were fighting the Second Revolution, and they were going to establish their own country, albeit their reasons were not good. In fact, the worst for which any country ever went to war, but the South said, let us depart in peace, and Lincoln said, I'm not going to do that, and he reached out to bring the South back together, and we have a war, a war that was necessary. But because it was causing country, patriotism, and principle for either side, it wasn't like the armies in Europe with the dregs of humanity who just didn't want to work, go into the army because they figured you, could, you got three meals a day and a place to sleep and your clothing is provided, and occasionally, yes, you have to risk your life to fight, but usually things are pretty calm in camp life. That was not the case in America. In in the Civil War, everybody was there on that field at Shiloh, and indeed the rest of them, because they wanted to be there, or at least up until 1863. Now, everybody at Shiloh was on that field, north or south, because he wanted to be on that field to fight for what he believed in. Because of that, Every level of the strata of society was represented, from the least educated to the most educated, from the the wealthiest man down to the poorest man. Every level of society was represented. And because of that, when the casualty list came out for Shiloh, that 23,746 men killed and wounded, 40% of every household in America Of all of them, four out of ten of all the homes in America, from Atlantic to Pacific, from Mexico to Canada, because they were even Nebraska, there were some from California. So when the casualty list came out from Shiloh, 
four houses out of ten all across America, four houses out of ten had somebody killed or wounded at Shiloh. Oh, that had to, like, I mean, that had to shock the world. That shocked the world. That brought the country to its knees. And the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth were heard when the shadow of death fell across the land. It was heard all across the land. And people were saying, my God, my God, what have we done? But it was too late. It was it was far too late. I can't even imagine this is true. But I read once that both sides before the war started thought that the battle would be relatively easily won. Both sides felt the exact same way. And there hadn't been a war for several years, so people didn't understand the, you know, the gruesome nature of war. I wonder if that's what allowed us to get to the point of Shiloh at all, because they didn't have any idea of what it was going to be like, and then Shiloh happens. But once Shiloh happens, the fuse is lit. And if everybody's affected, everybody's looking for some sort of revenge or payback. And then once that fuse was lit and Shiloh happened, it was almost like there was no turning back. There was no turning back at the Shiloh. The common saying is that nobody in the South ever smiled after Shiloh. Well, nobody in the North did either. Shiloh was the alarm bell in the night that aroused the country into realizing both what war was and the internalizing of we are at war. And war means death and pain and suffering and misery. But it was too late by then. That's why both sides resorted to conscription, the South sooner than the North. See, by the middle of the war, what what turned out to be the middle of the war, with all those men coming home with the empty trouser legs and the empty sleeves, or in such a rack tail from wounds that they died quickly or that they never wore the same again, or the, or the, the strain of the war uh, changed them for life. When these men become, begin to come home, people around them see the results of war. And while at first men piled into recruiting areas to sign up, in fact, many of them on both sides were sent home initially because we can't equip and, and uniform you, all those numbers stopped. There were too war, many volunteers at the beginning? Oh, there were far too many volunteers on both sides at the beginning for them to be equipped. To see that completely reversed by 1863, when enough men have come home, there have been enough deaths that, that the enlistments dropped almost nothing because men realized what could happen to them if they enlisted. That first wave of troops in 61 and even early 62, they had not seen the elephant. And when people saw the results of war, what happened, the enlistments dropped off. And that's why the, both sides quickly resorted to conscription. When the South started getting behind, this is, again, something that I read. Was the South hanging in at some point, in your opinion, hoping that the North would lose the desire to fight? Indeed, there were two major thrusts, uh, as I understand it, that the South had in fighting the war. See, Robert E. Lee could win the war simply by not losing it, making the people of the North weary of losing their sons to combat deaths or wounds. 
and just wear them out till finally they would press their elected representatives and Congress and say, just stop the war, negotiate a peace and let them go. Stop the killing. So the South was hoping to simply wear out the North and make them so wearied of the war and the death and the killing and the losses that they would sue for peace. The other issue that parallels that was that the South was in great hopes that England would come in and recognize that the Confederacy was a legitimate country or a legitimate belligerent, give them belligerent rights, as the politicians like to call it, and recognize the South as an independent country. If they did that, that would be a tremendous moral victory. And then also, hopefully, that they would help fund the war. And they hoped as well that France would come in on their side and that other European countries would recognize them as a viable, independent nation and support them in their war efforts. Now, that didn't happen. In fact, already people are saying that England was never going to come in on the side of the Confederacy. And as a war wore on, England became less and less inclined to support the Confederacy. And then Abraham Lincoln, on January the 1st of 1863, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And that changed the emphasis of the war from being a war to save the Union to a war to end slavery. It made it a holy war. And no country was going to come in on the side of the Confederacy, which would be tantamount to saying we're coming in to support the extension and continuation of slavery. So this became a crusade. It did. At first it was a war to, to preserve the Union, and then at what turned out to be midpoint, it became a crusade to end slavery. Nobody's going to fight on that side. Did the Confederacy have any reason to believe that a foreign power would come in? Like, was Jeff Davis overseas pulling a Benjamin Franklin negotiating on their behalf? Was there any reason to think that somebody might jump in and help them? I think the leadership probably knew early on that they weren't going to get the help from England or France that they anticipated. The feeling more precisely defined, the hope on the part of the people of the South that England would come in and support them was just that. It was a hope. I think we're finding out now that we've got some retrospect that that hope was all that it was, that it was a hope, and that that England was never going to come in on the side of the South. It's very obvious where this hope came from. France had talked about, rumbled about coming in. In fact, indeed, they built an ironclad ship that they named the Stonewall, and it was en route to the Confederacy when Lee surrendered to me at Appomattox. It's no wonder where this hope came from, because you just said three different things that explained how they could keep fighting, because they were fighting under the same recipe that Washington used. You had said that Robert E. Lee could win the war by not losing the war, which is, that's what Mm -hmm. Washington did, isn't it? That's exactly. Uh, well, Washington uh, did two things. He was able to hold out against the British, and also he had a great deal of military support from the French Navy and, and some French soldiers. But the French came in on the side of the colonies and provided a, a navy that was a match, in fact, a navy capable of defeating the British. Toward the end, Washington had progressed as a general, and he improved in his generalship. The colonists improved Continentals as an army, 
and they had been winning victories against the British, which was one of the contributing factors to Cornwallis surrendering because they saw that uh, the colonials were getting better at fighting a war <laughs> and that the French the French were pressing them hard and the French appeared with a, a naval force that was extremely hard to beat. The South was hoping to do what Washington and the Continental Congress had done 80 years prior. That's it. They had that dream that they were going to be able to pull that together again. Very interesting. So let's go to Fort Donaldson for a minute. When you were in Fort Donaldson, and that was before Shiloh. This was nothing like Shiloh, correct? Oh, no, no. The Confederates had about 17, depending on who you're talking to, 17 to 20,000 soldiers in Fort Donaldson, and I had ultimately 25, between 25 and 30,000 opposing them. And you picked up a nickname in Fort Donaldson, didn't you? Yes, I was termed Unconditional Surrender Grant that went along with my initials that go back to my Army issue name that was given me at the time I entered West Point. But U.S. Grant, Unconditional Surrender, when I, I told actually a classmate of mine at West Point who was a year ahead of me, Simon Bolivar Buckner, Kentucky native, I thought that at the time I sent that message that Gideon Pillow was still in command at uh, Fort Donaldson. Didn't realize I was responding to Buckner. I might have couched my expression in a little softer terms when I sent no conditions except uh, immediate and unconditional. Surrender. Yes. When you look at your leadership style, my impression was that the reason that you had so much success from one campaign to the next, from, handle, from fighting individual battles to taking control of the entire army, that you were just extraordinary at building the morale and motivating the troops. And what you've told me is that the thing that made you a great general is that you were able to see the whole battle as one piece and all the parts where they needed to be. So which, which do you think led to your success on the battlefield more? Your ability to see all the moving parts and put the pieces where they need to go or your, your ability to motivate the troops? The ability to see the battle, I, I don't know about the ability to motivate troops. So that would be for someone else to say. I think the troops were encouraged by my calm demeanor. I was never disturbed, never upset, never lost my temper. I think that may, if anything, if the word inspired is to be used, perhaps that would be the word. I think the two things, one would be the ability to see what needed to be done or what I felt needed to be done at what part of the field. And the other was the constant movement about the field. I spent the entire battle of Shiloh, the first and second day, going from commander to commander of every unit that I could find from one side of the front to the the other, and then back again. I was constantly under fire every part of both days because I felt that I had to be able to see for myself what was happening in order to know what to do next. And I also felt very strongly that it was great importance that the troops see me out there with them, to know that I was there with them. It was a lead from the front concept that I subscribe to. So you are always under fire 
and the troops are seeing this, and then you are, of course, building using your strength, which is being able to put the battle together if you know where the pieces are, knowing who's losing, who's winning, who needs help, and so forth. When you, in that particular battle where you are riding nonstop, back and forth, trying to figure it out, I understand that you were an extraordinary horseman, maybe, maybe still are. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. And so then, to go back in time a little bit, to something that ended up, I think, being a really important part of your success later on. Why in the world did they make you the quartermaster at West Point and not throw you into the cavalry? Well, the class of 1843, West Point, was said by the instructors to be the most lackluster class that they'd ever seen graduate from the academy. That looks good on a resume. (laughs) Yeah, what a... What a distinction, and that nobody went into the engineers, which was the plum choice. Then it was the cavalry, and then it was artillery, and then it was the infantry. I, uh, graduating in the middle of the class and being of no particular distinction in my undergraduate efforts, I had they had promoted me to a sar- cadet sergeant in my third year, but I did so poorly at it that they took my rank away and I came back my fourth year and had no rank at all. So I graduated. I had some rank and lost it and graduated with no rank. I had not exactly distinguished myself at the academy. My grades were in the middle of the class, so I didn't get into engineers. Everybody wanted the cavalry. Everybody said I should get the cavalry, but the faculty and staff felt otherwise. And I was assigned to the 4th Infantry Regiment and went to Jefferson Barracks and was there for a few months before we were shipped out to Camp Salubrity in Nacogdoches, Louisiana, and designated the Army of the Observation. We were observing the Mexicans. General uh, James K. Polk was poking the Mexicans trying to provoke a war, which was one of his campaign promises and part of his platform. And so President Polk kept poking the Mexicans until they finally poked back and we had a war. But when I got to Mexico, I was assigned as a quartermaster. Somebody had to do it type thing, and they assigned me. I was not a combat officer in the Mexican War, although I was promoted twice for bravery, brevet uh, first lieutenant, then to brevet captain, which, by the way, didn't carry any more pay. It just carried extra responsibilities and, and the title. I would like to have had the pay. But I was promoted twice for bravery because I always went to the sound of the guns. My assignment was back with the wagon train to keep the men supplied, but I always went to the sound of the guns. And I fought in every battle in the Mexican War except Buena Vista. And the only reason I missed that one was because I'd been transferred from General Taylor to General Scott. And while I was in transit, uh, the Battle of Buena Vista was fought. So I was made a quartermaster. I requested other duty, and the colonel commanding the regiment said I was performing too valuable a service and kept me as a quartermaster. But that served me well, because fighting a two-year war as a quartermaster, I saw what it takes to keep an army in the field fed and properly equipped, particularly with ammunition. A man can't fight if he doesn't have ammunition. So I learned those harsh realities as a quartermaster, as a young brevet lieutenant, brevet captain. And it served me well because whenever I was engaged in a fight, the first thing that I did, without exception, was to immediately order more ammunition brought to the front. 
because I knew if a man has to ask for ammunition, it's too late. He needs to have all the ammunition at hand that he needs as he needs it, not having to request. And I'd learned that from being in the Mexican War as a quartermaster. When I got to Shiloh, the first thing I did when I got at Pittsburgh Landing, oh, eight eight thirty the morning of April the 6th, when I hit the landing from uh, my boat and uh, disembarked, I immediately ordered that more crates of ammunition be sent out to the far-flung leading edge of the Federal Army as it was falling back, as it turned out that first day. Now, the second day was an exact reverse of the first. We pushed the Confederates back to where they started the day before. But I ordered ammunition to be sent to the front, and I began going from commander to commander to ascertain what he needed and to give him encouragement and then move on to the next commander. And that accomplished, I think, a great deal. Oh, geez, it's so easy. I mean, it's so much easier for a a man to fight if he thinks he is at least given the bare minimums, you know, something to drink, something to shoot with, something to shoot, and, you know, a little food, I mean, a little support. It's just, you can't even imagine fighting when you think, you know, I got to be careful with, with, with the musket balls I have. Well, I I saw in Mexico what it takes to keep a soldier fit and ready to fight, and I carried that through when I had command level authority and responsibility. Keep them keep them supplied and keep them moving, and let them see you. Also, something that I noticed in the Mexican War that. We were greatly outnumbered by the Mexican soldiers, but they were never a match for us because most of them were conscripts who'd been uh, taken from their villages and given a musket and a uniform and told to fight. Most of the Mexican soldiers had no idea why they were there being shot at and shooting at the Americans. And I I became firmly convinced that an intelligent and, and literate, educated fighting force was critical to the fighting force's capability and results, and that men needed to know and understand why they were in harm's way. I saw what a lacking it was in morale and fighting capability with the Mexican soldiers in the Mexican-American War, and I felt it would be the same in truth if the American fighting man did not know why he was there. But I, I was eager to see the, the uh, federal soldier to know why he was where he was in harm's way in fighting. And so indeed, wh- they did. So why were you fighting in the Mexican-American War? Why were you fighting? What was the reason? Well, I was opposed to the Mexican War. Uh, I think it's the most unfair war and said at the time and say now it was, I think, the most unfair war ever perpetrated by a stronger nation upon a weaker one. Really? In fact, I wanted, I wanted to resign my commission, but I didn't have the moral courage to resign my commission as a lieutenant because I didn't know what I would do if I resigned. So I swallowed my principles and stayed with the Army. As it turned out, I'm, I'm glad I did. But I think the the Mexican War was, as I said, it's the most unfair war ever perpetrated by a stronger nation against a weaker one. And in truth, I feel that this civil war that we fought was our divine retribution for having fought that war against the Mexicans. 
Yeah, geez. So let's go to, as we're talking about you being the quartermaster and you're talking about what you learned from supplying troops, let's go to Vicksburg for a minute. Vicksburg, which is right on the Mississippi River, and Vicksburg, that battle, it was happening pretty much at the same time that Gettysburg was happening. Is that correct? Well, the, the culmination of Vicksburg, you know, we'd been in siege for 47 days. 46 days when Pemberton came out proposing a surrender on July the 3rd. So Pemberton came out and proposed to me on the 3rd of July the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, sent a messenger proposing surrender. And he had no idea that things would progress as quickly as they did, that 24 hours later we would consummate the surrender. I know it said that he is said to have said that we'll get better terms if we uh, try to surrender and, and wrap the, up the matter on the 4th of July because those people hold great store in that national holiday. But I think that to be romance as well because when a messenger was sent out to uh, talk with me or get a message to me about 10 o'clock or so on the morning of July 3rd, John Pemberton had no, no idea that things would progress as quickly as they did. But we'd been in siege for 46 days. The Battle of Gettysburg, there'd been a brief campaign where Lee actually disappeared for a few days. Nobody knew where he was until he made his presence known in Pennsylvania. Which is then, Gettysburg, right? Which is near the town of Gettysburg. Yeah. And then it, it's like a, a stick in a stream that catches debris, it, it built up and, and built up to where Lee did not intend to fight a battle there, but as forces kept getting drawn into the combat, he quickly had a full-scale battle on his hands, one that he did not want to fight, particularly not there. Now, on the other hand, I've got six weeks of siege from May the 19th all the way through the 4th of the 3rd of July. Well, we've been in siege. We've blown up two mines under Confederate trenches. We've been gathering 75,000 men there in front of them, pushing and pressing against them, digging trenches to within scant feet away from the enemy trenches. So there's been a great deal of work going on for a long time. And that's why I said, the surrender at Vicksburg was really anticlimactic to what happened with the, certainly with the, the tremendous result from the surrender and fall of Vicksburg. But at Vicksburg ended with a whisper. Gettysburg ended with a thunderclap. Yeah, geez. I, I wonder if, because Gettysburg was so far up in the north and it was right in people's backyards for the Union. And Vicksburg was way down to the south, and I wonder if this was kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation, which is maybe why it, it got so much attention. Some of that applies. I would point out that all of the major newspapers in the United States at that time were in the northeastern section of the country. The New York papers, Philadelphia, Boston papers, and oh, they were Washington papers. And they, of course, were focused on the two capitals, which were less than 100 miles apart, federal and Confederate. And 
you had the, the General Lee, who was not himself a flamboyant person, but the efforts and successes of the Army of Northern Virginia were flamboyant and great for headlines. So the media coverage, the newspaper journalist coverage of the war was almost completely focused on the Eastern Theater with the Army of the Potomac versus the Army of Northern Virginia because, if nothing else, geography, two capitals 100 miles apart, all the newspapers in the biggest cities in the country, just 100 miles or, or not too much further, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, they're all in close proximity. So the Eastern Theater, leading the Army of Northern Virginia versus the Army of the Potomac, always got much more extensive press coverage than did anything in the Western Theater and witnessed what was going on in the Eastern Theater. In three years of war before I took command, there had been six different commanders. But in the Western Theater, I had experienced nothing but victory. Now think about that. Eastern Theater, they changed command, what, some six times, right. and Lee had defeated all of them. In the Western Theater, which wasn't getting near the coverage of the Eastern Theater, but in the Western Theater, I've won everything I've attempted. Paducah, Kentucky, Belmont, Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson, Shiloh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga. But what were the people in the country hearing at the time? All about the Eastern Theater, Lee and the versus the Army of the Potomac. If those, if those locations would have been switched and Vicksburg would have been up in Virginia, nobody would have even known Lee's name because <laughs> your name would have been in all the newspapers. <laughs> Let's talk about Vicksburg for a second. So all right. Vic, Vicksburg is on the Mississippi River. And my understanding is that when it came to Vicksburg, that battle, the purpose of it is you were trying to get control of the Mississippi River because there was a section that the Union did not have control of. And it sounds like out of all these battles that were fought, this one seems like it was the most significant and, and maybe even the most difficult. I don't, I don't know if, if it'd be more difficult than Shiloh, but did you try to at some point divert the, the Mississippi River to be able to get to Vicksburg? Well, there were two canal efforts made. One before I, I had assumed command down there, General Williams in 62 had tried to dig a canal across an isthmus of land just a little bit north of Vicksburg. The way the river flows past Vicksburg, just north of it, within sight of it, there's a section of land that comes out into the river, and the river flows south, cuts over to the east, cuts back south, back to the west, and then south. And that spit of land, that projection of land, results in any boats coming down the river have to come around it in view of the guns at Vicksburg and then sail for several miles right under some 200 different guns posted on those river bluffs overlooking the river. Now, the concept was to dig a canal at that northern end of the land north of Vicksburg, and dig a canal that would enable the river to go into the canal. See, the thinking was, well, we'll just dig a canal, and the, the Mississippi will flow into this canal due south, gouge it out, and we'll be able to, to sail these ironclads behind the cover of trees and out of the side of the, of the uh, Vicksburg Battery. And that was attempted, and the river went low because of a dry summer, and it wouldn't go into the canal, and it was abandoned. When I took command and moved on the campaign, 
the president was greatly interested in that canal idea. I had no thinking at all that it would work. In fact, I was convinced it would not. But the president made it clear he wanted that canal dug. Attempt. So that probably, I that probably attempted. seems like a really good idea from a distance, doesn't it? Yeah, from a distance. <laughs> but if you're standing there right. looking at the river, it's not such a good idea. But I had I, I complied with the president's wishes. And we began to redig the canal. I had several hundred soldiers, several hundred Negroes that, that I had impressed from plantations along the river there, working and digging. And oh, it was about chest deep and about 50 feet wide. That we figured once we can, we had the end, the northern end of it, where the river's flowing south. We had we had not opened that up yet, so we felt we could dig the canal down to the southern end where it would open with into the river again, dynamite out or break open the northern end of it, and the river would rush into the canal. And with the power of the river current and millions of gallons of water per second, would gouge out another river channel that we might indeed change the course of the Mississippi River. So we were digging and digging. It was, it was one of those activities, the canal was but one of several that I was attempting through the winter of 1862-63, primarily to keep my soldiers busy for two reasons. One, the northern press would have excoriated me no end in letting tens of thousands of soldiers sit in camp idle. As I have indicated before, the northern press, many of the, the newspapers were not kind to us in our efforts, in the, the federal efforts. I couldn't abide having an idle army and let the northern press take advantage of that. And the other issue is idle soldiers are a discipline problem, and I would be breeding problems no end if I didn't keep them busy. And while I had no optimism, confidence at all, that any of these efforts would work, I was prepared to take advantage of any of them that might work. And the canal was one of them. But as it turned out, as we were digging the canal, there were torrential rains, an extended period of heavy rains. The river rose and flooded the canal prematurely. As it turned out, the river simply was not going to go in that canal. It was an idea that simply was not going to work. And we abandoned it after I was able to demonstrate to those above me that the river's not going to go in this canal. It's not going to change its course. Nothing's going to happen here. It's all work for naught. And then those above me saw that it was true. I think it's ironic, though, that the canal failed twice, once because there was no water, and the second time because there was too much water. So we gave up the canal idea, uh, although part of that canal still exists. About 100 yards of it still exists. Is there water in it? No. Wasn't oh. then, isn't now. Because <laughs> the Mississippi is <laughs> going to do what it wants. <laughs> Mississippi has a mind of her own. She wrote a letter to Lincoln that said, Mississippi going to do what it wants, not what we want. General Grant. With Vicksburg then, once you actually did take control of that, you took control of the entire Mississippi River, which cut the Confederacy, cut the South in half, which made it very difficult to, for them to supply themselves with men or food or whatever. Whose idea was that? Was that your idea? Well, I had uh, the military objective in mind of opening the Mississippi. I also had the duality of the trade. 
I was under a great deal of pressure from the president to open the Mississippi, not just for what it would militarily do, but because of the trade, because all of the Midwestern farmers and manufacturers before the war had been shipping their goods and products down the Mississippi to New Orleans. When the war started and the river was bottled up now for two years, these farmers and those manufacturers, people like Mr. Deer in Moline, Illinois, have been having to ship their farm products or their, their manufacturing products across land to the North Atlantic seaports for shipment to Europe. Of course, the railroads and business being what they and it is, the railroads raise their freight prices because of the demand. And the farmers and, and the producers, manufacturers were howling about how much it was costing them to ship their goods and products east across land by railroad to eastern ports to be shipped to Europe. Also, the ironclad gunboats in the Mississippi River Squadron and there were many of them, they burn a ton of coal per hour. And there are no there are no coal mines in the south. Not not anywhere near that river. There are in Kentucky to be sure, but there wasn't any access to coal to feed those very hungry ironclad monsters. A ton of coal per hour. Any coal they burned, most of it had to be shipped down the Mississippi as far as Vicksburg, and they couldn't get any further. And you get when we got our ironclads over into those Louisiana rivers and tributaries and bayous around Lake Providence, Louisiana, they were running out of coal, and burning wood is, is a very poor substitute for coal. So I was under pressure from the president to open Vicksburg and open that commerce all the way to New Orleans, as well as the military objectives of shearing off from the Confederacy the Trans-Mississippi Theater, which is Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, tens of thousands of potential recruits, hundreds of thousands of hogs, tens of thousands of cattle for steak, beef steak, as well as the hides and leather goods that were needed to supply the Confederacy. When the Mississippi fell, and then five days later, Port Hudson, Louisiana, further south, fell. The Mississippi, as President Lincoln was wont to say, flows unvexed to the sea. That opened up the trade that could once again go from the Midwestern states, the old Northwest Territory, into the Mississippi. Now, the Mississippi River drains three-fourths of America, the North American continent. Everything from the Continental Divide and the Rocky Mountains to the eastern divide in the Appalachians. Every drop of rain that falls between those two mountain ranges ultimately goes down the Mississippi River. I didn't know that. It drains drains 75% of America. When it was closed up, it was a log jam that was just untenable for northern manufacturers, Midwestern particularly manufacturers and farmers. So I had that pressure to take Vicksburg, as well as the military benefits that we derived. We sheared off everything west of the Mississippi River, and then we were able, we had intended to turn inward to the east and spread across the south and press it all the way to the Atlantic coast and and southeast down into Florida. And that was the intent. I see. Let's talk about Lee for a minute, General Lee. Do you respect him? 
Oh, yes, I respected him greatly. A magnificent military mind and leader of men, a strategist, tactician, had great, still have great respect for General Lee. But I knew that General Lee was a man as I am, and he had his fallibilities and his weaknesses, and I had no compunction whatever about being pitted against him after President Lincoln had made me general-in-chief. He was as mortal as I was, and I had no fear of him. Was there something about war or battle that you did fear? No, no. Early in in 61, when I was in, in Missouri chasing Tom Harris, a Missouri militiaman, I was tasked with going to take him. And as I approached where he was to be encamped in a riverbed, I had tremendous fear. My heart was in my throat pounding. I knew the man next to me must be able to hear my heart pounding. I wanted to be anywhere but there. Back home on the porch with Julia, anywhere but there. But I didn't have the moral courage to stop or to run. I just kept going. And as we got to the crest of the riverbank and looked down into that ravine where Tom Harris and his Confederate militia was supposed to be, he'd skedaddled. I had a revelation, an epiphany. I realized that as afraid as I had been coming up that hill, the enemy was just as afraid of me as I was of him. I mused, sitting my horse, looking down into that river bottom, a view of the question that I had never taken. The enemy was as afraid of me as I was of him. And that was a great moment for me in the war because ever after, I was never concerned about going into into battle with the enemy. Oh, I never had wow. never had any trepidations about the outcome. Uh, occasionally, I, I might have some concerns about my own well-being, but they were fleeting. After that, I realized, or when I realized, that the enemy was as afraid of me as I was of him, I went into battle with every confidence about the outcome and no concern about my own well-being. Well, your mind has an incredible ability to take extremely difficult situations and get comfortable with them. I always had a goal. Ever since I'd been a child, I had a, a superstition never to retrace the same path twice. I, even as an adult, if I left home to go to work, for example, in Galena or even prior to that in St. Louis, that if I had forgotten something or needed needed to return home, I would return a different way, even if it meant walking around the block to keep from going back and retracing my steps. So anytime I set a goal, an objective, when I commenced activities, the goal never changed. How I got there could change. That was fluid. I might change directions or paths multiple times. But how I got to my objective was immaterial to securing the objective. Once the goal was set, there was just no stopping. When you think about Lee, I'm going to ask you about somebody we haven't even discussed yet. When you think about General Lee, I always have trouble saying this. Uh, is it Appomattox Courthouse where you met? Appomattox Courthouse, yes. Yeah. That's where he surrendered to me. When he surrendered, a very honorable man saying, okay, Here's the deal. We both fought courageously. We both believe in what we're doing, but you've clearly won, and so we're going to meet face-to-face. We're going to shake hands, 
and I'm going to say congratulations, you won. That's basically what happened, correct? No. Oh. Uh, no. It would. It might appear that way from the outside looking in, but Lee had attempted <clears throat> to break out and escape south to Joe Johnston as late as 6 o'clock in the morning of the day he surrendered to me at about 2 o'clock that afternoon. Oh. He had never... He had never given up fighting. He'd never given up the hope to break through federal forces and get south into North Carolina to uh, General Joe Johnston. So there was no resignation. Okay, you win. I give up. He was fighting to the very bitter end. And the morning of April the 9th, he sent General John D. Gordon and his army south of Appomattox Courthouse Village to try to break through to Appomattox, Virginia, which is three miles south on the railroad. There's a railroad station at Appomattox, Virginia. Appomattox Courthouse is a little village just three miles north of it. Well, Lee was in camp at Appomattox Courthouse. He had ordered John D. Gordon to take his army and try to punch through my army, the Army of the James, by that time, and break through to get south to Appomattox Courthouse get food, and then continue to go on into North Carolina. But his trains had been captured. Three of seven cars had been destroyed. Four got away. We got them later. And it was when General Gordon had notified him that my army has fought to a frazzle, and unless you can send me reinforcements from General Longstreet, we are done. And Longstreet was north. Now, Gordon was south of Lee at his encampment there near Appomattox Courthouse. Longstreet was north of him. Longstreet couldn't send any help. And it was at that point that Lee realized it was all over. And even though he had some 35,000 Confederate soldiers there, they were starving. To continue to fight was simply to continue to commit men to their death unnecessarily. And that didn't have a chance that they did not have a chance. He was caught in a vice grip on the east from the Army of the Potomac and his west, the Army of the James. There were 63,000 federal troops that had him in a vice grip. He was down to about 35,000. And to continue to fight was simply a needless effusion of blood. Men would have died for nothing. No difference would have been made. This wasn't a lack of courage. This wasn't a man giving up. This is a man being realistic and merciful. And on the other hand, tell me if this is exactly the opposite. When the war had gone south, in the south, and Jefferson Davis, the president, did run, was he a coward? No, he not at all. Uh, on April the 2nd, Lee had advised him, April the 1st, uh, 65, Lee had advised him that I was about to cut the South Side Railroad south of Petersburg and the last railroad that was bringing in supplies to his army. And therefore, I, if I caught the South Side Railroad close it and I was within hours of capturing it, that Lee would not have any source of supplies. And indeed, he wouldn't have any avenue of escape for his army. So on April the 1st, he knew he had to evacuate Petersburg, and he'd known that for 10 months, that that ultimately 
his situation was going to result in this. He sent Jefferson Davis notification Sunday morning the 1st and said, I'm going to evacuate tonight. And Davis asked him, can you hold another day? And Lee replied, I've been telling you this for months. I can't, I may not be able to hold it through the rest of today. So on April the 2nd, Davis and his cabinet fled south because Davis had not given up hope of establishing or continuing the Confederate government. So he escaped south. No, he was not a coward. It was it was the thing for the president and his cabinet of that so-called Confederacy to try to live to fight another day. I see. That makes sense. It seems like when you became president and became responsible for reconstruction of the nation, which I, we're going to run out of time. We're not. Gonna be, I, I want to ask you so much about that because your role in that was extraordinary. But it seems to me that long before you were president, you were already thinking about reconstruction because I heard that after you made an agreement at the Appomattox Courthouse that the troops were cheering and you asked them to stop. Is that correct? That is correct. When Lee left the McLean house to ride back to his troops, there was bands started to play, there was cheering, and cannons began to fire. And I uh, told my command staff there, stop those bands and silence those guns. There will be no celebrating. The rebels are our countrymen again. Now what? And they quickly stopped. Now what did happen was one lone federal bugler, uh, not far from the porch of the McLean house, played a very melancholy version of Old Lang Syne. And that was the only music. Once I stopped the bands, that was the only music heard, the notes of Old Lang Syne floating over the village of Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. That is so forward-thinking to be on top of that. You and uh, Did you and Lee communicate after the war? We communicated twice. The next morning on April the 10th, I decided to ride over to his camp and try to prevail upon him, being general-in-chief of all Confederate forces, to order the surrender of all Confederate forces in the field and end the war right there. I proposed that to General Lee, and he said he did not have that authority. Uh, I thought he did. He was general-in-chief. But he said, I would have to talk to my president about that. Now, neither one of us knew at that time that Davis was indeed already fleeing south into Georgia. But he demurred and said, I'd have to talk to my president. I cannot. I don't have the authority to order that. And seeing that he'd made up his mind, I knew it was there was no need in trying to convince Robert E. Lee to change his mind. I bid him adieu, and he said, well, General, the South is a mighty big place. You may have to march over it two or three times before you conquer it. (laughs) That's what he said? Yes. And I grimly smiled and said, yes, General, it is. We bid adieu to each other. I saw him one more time on May the 1st of 1869. I had just taken office weeks before, March the 4th. And General Lee was in Washington City on some railroad business. He had taken a position with the railroad. And while in Washington City, he stopped by to pay a call. And in those days, you could do that. And I had one of my secretaries, uh, I don't recall which one it was. I had Horace Porter and Orville Babcock and Fred Dent, my brother-in-law. 
I don't recall who it was that came in and told me, but they said, Mr. President, you've got a visitor out here. Robert E. Lee is, is at the door and wants to visit. And I, I said, well, yes, yes, let him in. So we visited for about 20 minutes in private and no secretaries, no recording of what we said. And I will not tell you now what we talked about, but we visited that 20 or 30 minutes and then generally took his leave. A little more than a year later, he died. Sorry, I just want to thank you for all of this time that you've given me. I, I have two more questions to ask you, and I just am so thankful. And there's so many things I want to ask you, but I'm hoping that maybe we could have another conversation another time because we haven't even talked about your presidency. But let me, let me get two more questions because I, be, I want to be respectful of your time. After you met at Appomattox Courthouse, it's my understanding that President Lincoln invited you to see a show with him five days later and you decided not to attend that, correct? That's correct. Could you tell me why, how do you turn down the president when he invites you to go to a show? The president and I had a very good working relationship. He was one of the finest men I have ever had the privilege to meet and certainly to spend time with. And we had a, a very genial relationship. And on the morning of April the 14th, he, I was at the executive mansion, and he told me in conversation that the very famous, uh, popular comedy, Our American Cousin, starring Laura Keene, had been held over for a week in Washington and that the president and Mrs. Lincoln were going to attend the theater that night for a special presentation for the president and would like to know if Mrs. Grant and I would come and attend with them. And it was strictly optional, no, no difficulties inherent in a refusal. And I, being the wise husband that I was, said, well, I'll need to talk with Julia about that, Mr. President, and see what she has in mind <laughs> and what, uh, what plans she may have. Always a wise choice. He, he said, uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, let me know. I went home and was talking with Julia and told her the invitation. And she said, rather indignantly, she said, you go back and tell the president that we can't make it that we're going to see our children in Burlington, New Jersey, where they're going to school. Fred was at the academy at that time, so Jesse and Nellie and, and Buck, uh, Ulysses Jr., were in various schools close by in Burlington, New Jersey. But tell the president that we are going to see our children. We haven't seen them in quite a while. And besides that, I refuse to spend another minute with that woman. <laughs> Is that right? That's correct. So I went back and told the president that we were going to go see our children in Burlington, New Jersey. And regrettably, I had to make my excuses and we would not come. So that's why I was not with the president on the night of April the 14th of 1865. And I have bitterly regretted that ever since. I was wondering, because I, I can't help but think that if a military man of yours that five days earlier was on the battlefield, and again, you, you couldn't have known this was going to happen, but if a military man like you with the strategic mind that you had, if you had maybe looked at the box or how things were set up, you may have said, look, we need additional security over here, and you know, maybe Lincoln would have not been assassinated. <coughs> have you had that thought? 
I feel uh, that uh, had I been with the president that evening, he would not have been assassinated. Because the circumstances, and that is a heavy burden to bear, the circumstances were that President Lincoln's normal bodyguard, his good friend Ward Hill Layman, Marshall Mm -hmm. Layman, was out of Washington City on business and was not there to attend that night. The president had another officer assigned to him who came to the theater with him. And everything that could go wrong did, in essence, because you may not be aware, but the Ford Theater shared a building with the saloon next door. They were all one building. And Lincoln, who was always disdainful of assassination uh, attempts or threats on his life, Lincoln, when they arrived at the theater, told the uh, bodyguard, why don't you just go to the saloon here next door rather than sit here in the box or sit outside and and have a drink. And and when you hear the applause, you'll know the the play is over and just come back and collect me and we will leave. And uh, the bodyguard uh, agreed to that, assented to that, and he moved on next door and sat and you know there are some talks that he got drunk and so forth i don't believe that i think the man just killed time while the president watched the play and then booth who was a well-known actor had acted in fact he was an acting family his brother and his father were those three men were the most famous actors in in the world at the time booth had acted many times at the ford theater so he was known. He wasn't challenged in coming in off the backstage alley, stage entrance. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. He wasn't some guy that just rode into town that day. No, he was, he'd was. he been at Ford's Theater, I dare say, hundreds of performances. I didn't, that's interesting. Well known. Well known at the theater. So the, the stage manager backstage indeed gave no thought to Booth coming in the door and being backstage. That's how we gained such easy access. I see. And then, he, and then he went up the staircase, short staircase there, to the presidential box. Of course, he knew the play well. And when uh, right there toward the end of the play, when there was a great deal of applause for a particular line, he pushed the door open, put the, that uh, Philadelphia Derringer up to the back of the president's head and pulled the trigger. Now, had I been with the president... I would have had several troopers, probably my escort, cavalry troopers. There would have been at least one at the foot of the staircase backstage, probably another one at the door, if not a man at the door. There would have been one or two troopers at the stage door opening into the alley. So when Mr. Booth came up to go into the stage door, he probably... And I understand that probably is a dangerous adverb, but Booth sure. probably would have been challenged coming into the theater off of the alley. And even if not then, when he got to the steps leading up to the presidential box, he would have been challenged before he got in that door. And those troopers or trooper, now these are men who were inured to killing after four years of war and totally devoted to myself. And the thought of anybody trying to harm me, they would have joyfully killed them. So when Booth got to the the presidential box door, there would have been one or two troopers there who would have challenged him and asked him what business he had. 
And when he told them whatever he might have told them, they would ask him, is the general expecting you? Oh, and, when, and And then they would have said whatever answer he gave, under the best circumstances, they would have said, let me check with the general yeah. if he's expecting someone. Oh, my uh, so if I had been with the president, Booth would not have gotten in that door. I did not and expect your <laughs> I did not expect your answer to be this complete, but there is no chance that he would have made it to the president or you. None. None. Because they would have been focused certainly with the president, but they would have been focused on me. The question would have been, is the general expecting you? Uh, and oh even if they, he said yes, the trooper or troopers would have said probably would have been two, would have said, We'll check with the general. Or they'd have said, you need to come back after the play is over. Booth only had a one-shot Derringer and a dagger, a theatrical dagger, actually. He only had one shot. He would have had a shot for me. Well, let me, listen, I can tell that I am wearing out your throat. I can hear you have a sore throat, and I don't want to make that worse. I'm going to thank you for your time. And, again, I just want to thank you for everything that you did, and I look forward to our next conversation. As do I, Mr. Dean. As do I. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Yes, sir. In his youth, Grant wanted to be a riverboat captain, similar to Mark Twain. It's ironic that in his later years, after Grant had been swindled, losing all his money as a private citizen, that one would-be riverboat pilot saved the other when Mark Twain published Grant's memoirs, netting his family a fortune shortly after Grant's death. As you listen to Grant's story, it's filled with so many what-ifs. What if he had not been the quartermaster in the Mexican-American War and not understood how important the supply lines were to a successful campaign? What if any of the circumstances mentioned in this call had prevented him from going to West Point at all? And of course, what if he had talked Julia into a relaxing night out with President Lincoln after so many years of hard fighting? What if? Thank you for listening, and don't forget, when you subscribe right now and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you are making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.